This episode is brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com. With over 87 courses on offer, including new courses in VFX Supervision, RenderMan, Nuke, Modo, After Effects, Premiere, and Smoke. Take your career to the next level at fxphd.com. Welcome to this week's VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour. The VFX Show, of course, where we like to review films, especially the visual effects of them, with a panel of uh, experts from around the world. Uh, this is, of course, not with the people that necessarily made the film. These are people that um, have, uh, like you or I, probably seen the film, and we uh, judge the visual effects, both good and bad. And hopefully, if we're judging the bad, we offer some opinion as to why we think uh, it could be improved. And if we're judging the good, applaud maybe um, advances in the film. And certainly, we've got a very interesting film for you this week in the amazing spider-man i'm joined by matt out of london matt how are you sir very well thank you thank you for having me on the show again that's all right matt leonard what have you been up to recently i have been uh doing a lot of pre- preparation a lot of writing i'm uh, i'm kind of usually training but i've been doing a lot of uh document writing for uh universities at the moment and i've written about a hundred thousand words i think so uh, wow I'm glad that's over now. Excellent. Would you like to ask out. what the subject was? It's multiple subjects trying to help the universities uh, bridge the gap between what they're teaching and what the industry here in the UK actually needs. And there has been a bit of a gap, so we're trying to help them bridge that. Brilliant. Now, I'm going to do something a bit different this week and get you to give out your Twitter names at the beginning of the show, not at the end. Because I think what happens at the end is people like know that the main conversation's finished and they tune out. So what's your uh, Twitter um uh, link like how can people kind of get in touch with you and follow you probably the easiest way is just uh matt d leonard matt d leonard on the twitters at twitter and we're also joined by jason diamond my good friend out of new york how are you sir good morning or for me morning <laughs> morning for you night for me <laughs> Too many time zones in this uh in this show no, no it's good sydney new york london some of the best cities in the world um how are you, what are you uh doing? i'm good you been busy uh yes very busy uh, we just wrapped, um, and I believe it should be out by the time the show airs, a, um, a music video for Sesame Street with uh, with Cookie Monster, which was pretty amazing. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, I must admit, Very you, you um, I, I got wind of that, and uh, nothing but envy. <laughs> I just think <laughs> yeah. that is just awesome. <laughs> Career high. I would love to have been your shoes. Was it good? Yeah, it was amazing to uh, to work with, with the Muppeteers and... Uh, and the and the people at Sesame, and we shot Epic, which was which was great because I don't think they Sesame has done any uh, solid Epic work yet. So it was nice to sort of bridge the gap on that one, and uh, everyone was really stoked. I guess you've seen the documentary uh, become was it Being Elmo? Being Elmo, I've um, seen some of it. I, I have I have to sit down and 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 it's watch definitely it. worth a view. It's uh, quite inspirational, surprisingly so, given that yeah. uh, you know you'd think we'd all be over it at our age. But no, I thought it was a spectacularly good uh, film. And you know, it's a good documentary, but it's also a great story. Yeah. And and as part of my campaign of moving Twitter things up the front of the show, <laughs> what's your Twitter link? What do people want to follow you? Uh, just just all one word: Jason Diamond, D I A M O N D, like the ring. 
Brilliant. And of course, I'm over at FX Guide and my uh, Twitter is Mike Seymour. And I'd love to have you guys uh, follow along as well as uh, view the site, which has a lot of stories about today's film, uh, Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man. This is uh, being billed in Australia as a prequel, I think, by people that obviously didn't see the first film because it, <laughs> it certainly didn't strike me as a prequel. Uh, Matt, how did it strike you? Was it marketed that way in England? Uh, it was. It pretty much came across as a reboot. A lot of people were, were talking about it as a as a straight reboot, and um, and I think that was the way I approached it going into it as uh, just a kind of a fresh pair of eyes on the on the story. And Jason, did we need a reboot of this? It was only a few years ago. It felt like that the last one was out. I I don't think so. I mean, I like the film, but I I think they could have handled the origin part in a little bit of backstory. Uh, and and had more of a forward-looking story, but in 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 the in the larger sense, I think they handled it well. Okay, well, let's leave aside uh, the fact that we probably all saw the first three, and certainly uh, I would agree with you. I don't think it really needed a reboot. I think it was a classic case of wanting to make a Spider-Man film, and they thought that the that the actor that they had in place was just too old to play him now, and they just wanted another Spider-Man film. And once they did that, they thought it'd go back over again. But um. If you can sort of leave it aside, and, and by the way, my sort of three-word or two-word review for this um, uh, film, as soon as I walked out, somebody, because um, I saw an early preview of it, and I, you know, I liked the visual effects in this a lot. Um, there's just no two ways about it. But somebody said, what do you think of the film? And I was like, really good cover version, uh, because <laughs> that's how it felt to me. It felt like a song that I knew all the words to, but this was a good cover version of it and i like cover versions of songs but they don't necessarily have the same place in my heart perhaps as the original uh mainly because i know that they're a cover version but doesn't mean i can't enjoy them so i'm gonna basically sit with that that's my tag that's my t-shirt i'm wearing it and uh i'm gonna move past that to a discussion that i want to get into which is the visual effects of the film it's a heck of a lot of really interesting visual effects in this film perhaps even more than I anticipated there was going to be um, going in. I got to go over to Sony and spend a day with the guys, um, gosh, three months ago when they were still in production on this. Some of that is in an FX Guide TV, some of it's in a written article. And then since then, we've also had uh, more stuff to do with uh, it. And I'm going to start, if I can, before we get to the visual effects, in a bit of a chat about the camera format with you, Jason, because this was one of the first uh, epic films shot in stereo from a from a punter's point of view, from somebody just were watching the films, they would have seen this come out after Prometheus. But in the timeline of filmmaking, this uh, really attacked the epic at the very, very outset of the epic, didn't it? Yeah, this was, I'm pretty sure this was the first epic film, stereo or otherwise. Was it uh, October 2010, I believe, yeah, they started shooting-ish? We have a timeline on it from the guys at Light Iron, Michael there, um worked with us on a timeline of that R&D phase leading up to the film uh, coming out, and that's uh, uh, over at uh, FX Guide. And, yeah, that that uh, shooting diary, I think, I'm just checking it as I speak now, but, I yeah, fall of, of 2010 uh, was the outset. And he makes that point in that story, which I think is one not to be sort of passed over, which is that this is 2010, and they're about to do a $200 million film, and they don't really have cameras that work per se. The MX sensor that's in the new camera itself has only been out for like nine months, and all of this is being provided by a camera company that isn't Sony to Sony. <laughs> uh, it was by no means a certainty that this was a good way to go, Jason. 
yeah, I mean, that's you have to even people want to shit talk Sony and say things about the cameras or whatever as opposed to red or you know fanboys or not but that's a huge leap of faith on sony's part to allow um the film to move forward on with such a high profile project on that camera on that camera so totally agree yeah uh i I think it was i think it paid off because i think it looked fantastic uh honestly from just from a from a pixel peeping point of view um, and especially for essentially an alpha camera and firmware and knowing what, uh, with my own epics, having them over, over a, almost a year and a half now myself, they, the, the, the advancements that they've made in the camera tech, uh, from a firmware and hardware perspective in that time is astounding. So to, to know that they were working with, with, uh, essentially the the um, two sticks rubbing together essentially at that point uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, two years ago, wow. Tommy, uh, can we just do a quick whip round? Who saw the film in what format? Um, Jason, what did you see it in? Or I saw it, it in uh, in digital, real D, three D, just standard two K. Uh, no IMAX three D. Right, and Matt. Um, I also got to see it in 2K Real D, but uh, last night I nipped out again and saw it at uh, a theatre just down the road, and they were showing it in a 4K digital projection system Ooh. they just had put in, and it looked incredibly crisp and nice. Mono or stereo? Uh, that was just a mono viewing. Was that a real 4K DCP, or were they just upscaling? Because I wasn't able to find uh, out I if they did that. I'm not sure. They they were billing it as a new projector that had only gone in in the last week. So I'm guessing whatever it was was pretty pretty new for the theatre. Um, and it looked it looked gorgeous. So, I've uh, seen three projections of the film, not the whole film. The first projection was at Sony, um, as I say, three months ago, which was a uh, a short projection run. It wasn't the whole film. I saw it, but I saw it in what has to be the greatest theatre I've been. Well, probably one of like my three best theatres I've ever been in. One of the other ones is the uh, the main theatre up at uh, Skywalker Ranch, and th- this just was an amazing experience. It just projected incredibly well. That was um, in 4K and in uh, in stereo. I saw it in stereo in Sydney. What was interesting about that was it was two projectors, so I got 2K uh, instead of doing the trick of 1920 by 1080 and they're you know flipping between them and stuff. This was probably two projectors, 2K, and that looked spectacularly good. And uh, and then I also saw it in just uh, normal. Uh, projection 2K mono, uh, simply because uh, my kids wanted to see it and I, and I took them back. And it was interesting to see it in mono over having seen it in stereo because some people said uh, um, it would not be perhaps as good. I, I found it fine in, stere- in mono. I just didn't find it to be a problem whatsoever. I don't hold with the theory that um, the film looked better in either one, actually. I think that it was an interesting experience to immerse yourself in it in uh, in 3D and, of course, there's a lot of sort of stuff that played well for that when you're flying around with him. Uh, but if you get to see it in uh, in mono, as long as it's a good projection and the light levels are up on the screen, and we were lucky to have very good light levels on the screen. And I know that because I got to see it at Sony, at, um, at Sony Pictures Image Work, where, of course, the projection was perfectly aligned. Uh, it's just a really vibrant piece of footage, and I didn't see any artefacts. I thought the epics looked spectacular. So um, really, the camera that is... Um, 
Some people are saying that the Epic is the camera for doing sci-fi work and the Alexa is the camera for doing drama. I don't think that's true. I think the Epic's just got a huge edge in just how small the darn thing is. So when it comes to stereo, it's just a, such a great camera to work on. Do you agree with Jason? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I was having this conversation with Mark Peterson uh, from NTED, actually, um, that that people sort of pigeonhole the camera right now as a as a 3d only camera for these larger productions and it's not until movies like total recall and ender's game and other really big 2d productions come out that that producers will start changing their minds and saying oh right you know uh it's not just a 3d camera because that's that's sort of the misconception in the larger uh producery market because sometimes producers just follow the trends they don't really want to push forward which was um you know, it's a problem sometimes. So, I, well, I, I think it works in both. Did personally. well at the box office. You know, they both did well. They weren't converted films, and they looked really good. And I haven't heard anyone complaining about the stereoscopic implementation either. Um, some really nice stereoscopic work done in fixing these films up as well, and some good use of Mystica. But let's um, switch gears and go over to the visual effects. And uh, Matt, I'm going to start with you. Is a sort of a general overview. Um, how do you think they stacked up? Uh, I think they stacked up really well. They obviously had a, a good mix of environments and characters and character interaction. They had a nice amount of kind of fluid dynamics work with all the smoke and things. So I think overall, I had a big a big tick on all the effects work. There was only a couple of shots that I kind of didn't like, and that was probably just me. Everything else, I just thought looked spectacular. Well, before we go negative, let's stay positive. Jason, I assume we can stay positive with you, can we? Sure. You uh, liked it? The film? The effects. The effects? Yeah. I thought I thought everything was really nice. And in doing the research for the, for the movie, realizing that certain scenes that I had really liked and sequences being fully digital that I didn't even realize were fully digital is, I mean, it's incredible. The amount of stuff they, they pulled off. Um, is is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. We um, we need to sort of get critical on it in a minute. But before we do, I just want to go around on what we think was the best aspect of the visual effects, rather than just play it sequence by sequence. And my vote's probably pretty apparent by the bias I gave in the FX Guide article, which I think that the lizard was just rendered uh, superbly. It was implemented really well. Uh, it was modelled well. I thought it was a terrific piece of uh, just texturing to the, the get that skin working and not make it look toony, cartoony. Uh, its weight distribution seemed really good. Um, there was a couple of times it had to move really super quick and and I could kind of believe it, uh, but nothing beat how good that sucker looked up in close-up. It was uh, just a remarkable piece of rendering uh cloth sims on you know when it had garments hanging off it that was sort of shredded and stuff everything was just hanging in there spectacularly well i think sony's just totally up the ante on that do you agree matt yeah definitely i mean just reading through your article on on fx guide about just the modeling side of it alone i mean we can talk about all the texturing and cloth which was amazing but the modeling and what they were doing with uh, kind of the the vector displacements in order to get extra detail that would have probably been impossible a year ago and just kind of the level that they went to in building all that detail into the shot before that was put through into the shading and, and lighting of the model it was just extraordinary really 
Now I'm gonna I'm gonna geek out on this film I think because we've got the window because I think a lot of stuff has been released on the film and we can go uh, with a fairly informed opinion on geeking it out. So you mentioned there the texturing in terms of the vector maps. Uh, do you want to explain what they are for people? Uh, it seems to be a, a system that at the moment uh, Sony, I believe, were using uh, Mudbox to do it, yep. which is a way of the displacements actually having a curl to them instead of simply being straight out of the normal of the uh, of the surface. Is that right? Yeah, so a good way to think of it is if you were thinking of roofing tiles, that's a good way of thinking of it as scales. Um, a roofing tile, when you sort of look at them on a house, they overlap. They lay so one end is over the start of the next one as you go down the roof effectively. Um, in that sense, they're different from a straight displacement map that would come out along the line of the normal. So if you think of a cake that rises, um, it's sort of lifting up off the sort of flat, nature of it when it's uh, in the oven, but it kind of puffs mm -hmm. up. It doesn't fold back on itself in a kind of a zigzaggy pattern the way scales do, or in my case of analogy of roofing tiles. That idea is because you can basically produce vector displacements, and the vector displacements are exactly what you think they are. They, you, um, in much the same way that you use vectors for a bunch of other things in um, surface normals and other things like this, you're no longer just saying, hey, pretend like this, this surface is lifted up uh, at an angle that's 90 degrees to the surface. Imagine that you slant it like almost like a sawtooth, and so it overlaps on itself, which is just perfect right. for scales. Yeah, no, excellent, and it, and it, I think it really paid off putting that level of detail into the into the model and into the displacement shaders. I think it really just made the character look more realistic. And there were some incredibly close shots, um, especially towards the end of the movie, where you really got a very very close look at the at the lizard's face, and it was just perfect, really. Yeah, they didn't actually end up sliding those scales one over another in the way that you might think of a fish scale kind of sliding uh, because apparently reptilian skin is more prone to reducing to kind of smaller scaly kind of elements on highly flexible regions. So if you look at his face in any PR shot or on FX Guide or whatever, you'll notice that areas around his mouth where there is the need to have a lot of uh, flexibility and, you know, he's got a bend and do stuff very small kind of finite scales on the top of his head where of course you don't really get much movement whatsoever you get this much sort of more um blockier thing and the thing that it reminded me of matt was um the thing you know the uh uh um, like I said, John, Carter, John Carter. No, 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 no. The, no, the Fantastic the, Four. Fantastic Four. Thank oh, you. yeah, yeah. Sorry, of course. Yes. Because that one's got that kind of uh, cracked brick texture look, which yeah. is a little bit what was going on, on the top of his head. I didn't think it ever worked particularly well. Uh, in um, I don't know what you thought, Jason, but that that has always bugged me. That kind of brick thing that actually still bends. Yeah. Their solution of changing the density and the size, uh, and also producing this kind of flappy very lizard-like neck, I think, was a terrific solution. Yeah, I mean, having the, having the, the sort of drapey skin, uh, I think, really sold it. Because lizards have, like, when you see them walk iguanas and stuff like that, they yeah. have, you know, they have, like, saggy elbows and, and, and stuff around their forearms and, like, old lady skin under their, you know, the backs of their arms and stuff to, uh, to, to, to take up slack for when they need to move. And I think they handled that really nicely. It's subtle, but 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 physically correct and and worked well with the animation. So I said I was going to geek out. One of the things that we've been, in fact, it's in the first class uh, of the f background fundamentals on FX PhD this term. We're looking at um, subsurface scattering. 
and this is obviously the property that we expect to see in more natural skin um, and the waxy property of the... Um, actually, it's funny, Matt, I was doing a lot of research for this for uh, FXPHD and I actually right. found out the statistic. It's about sort of 6 to 8% is specular highlight and the rest on a human face is uh, subsurface scattering, a huge diffuse to spec um, component. And on Prometheus, we did a story uh, highlighting that Prometheus really lifted the game in terms of going to a QD uh, uh, quantized sort of solution that's based on uh, Gaussian uh, dispersions that happen as the light leaves the skin from having gone underneath it and uh, moving out. And of course, one of the reasons why we say you have a diffuse uh, skin is because the light hitting it, no matter if it's polarised or whatever, uh, goes underneath the skin, bounces around, scatters, and then comes back out. So that's the sort of definition of diffusing light. And so that property we've been solving for a while in computer graphics, pretty much since, what, about 2001. And we've been getting progressively better at it as an industry. But Weta really lifted the game in Prometheus, and I thought that the... Uh, the engineers were really, really good, but not a couple of weeks later, Sony is lifting the game again and going for a full uh, Monte Carlo solution. Do you want to just um, explain to people a bit, Matt, what we're talking about here? Because this is like really going <laughs> to an incredible level to uh, produce the realism that they did in things like The Lizard. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, th there's a difference between Weta and Sony and the renders they were using, I believe, I think. Um, Weta's rendering primarily for that show through Renderman, I think. Yep. And um, Sony are using the Arnold renderers. That that's right, isn't it? Yep. Though Sony is using their own implementation of Arnold as opposed right. to the solid angle. Now they're very very similar, but it is a slightly different version because they use um, open source language, uh, their own open shaders, uh, which are slightly different to the ones that. Uh, yes. You use Arnold, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. And so this whole kind of subsurface scattering, I think it it's obviously being used a lot at the moment. It's the thing that enables light to penetrate into the skin, bounce around and create some kind of almost illumination within the skin um, surface and then come out again. And as you said, for the lizard, I think they've just taken it to another level. Um, and everything we're seeing, um, film after film, that it seems to be constantly being pushed a little bit higher every time. So I think they've done a great job in, in getting that to work really nicely, especially as the lizard skin is, is quite a different look and style to what we saw in Prometheus and then, again, what we'd have seen in something like Gollum or Davy Jones. Yeah, so in the scene like, for example, the hallway in the school where you've got both characters fighting each other, that's uh, perhaps... Jason, one of the shots you were referring to when you said it was fully digital, that was you're surprised about. It? Would that be right? Yeah, yeah. I was. It was phenomenal. I uh, after after watching all the walkthroughs and everything, uh, I called my brother who who went to the film with me, and I was like, "Hey, remember that sequence? Uh, you know, in the school that was fully digital." And he was like, "What? How is that possible?" And you know, just because it doesn't look. It doesn't look digital. I mean, not that not that at this point things do, but it's so seamlessly. Um, matches that it I mean it's pretty incredible let me discuss um, a little how they do the lighting for that because it's one of the really interesting aspects that they also brought out uh, in talking about the film um, if you listen to the show you may know about uh, HDRs and the idea of getting a high dynamic range sample of the lighting at any set location though as you say this wasn't a set but let's for assume for a second that it was so you you do a bracketed set of stills on a on an eight mil kind of fisheye you patch them all together and you get a basically a sphere 
that has recorded the light at a huge range of exposures in every direction. Now, for ages, we've been able to take that. I say ages. I mean, like that's a long time in computer graphics, right? Like, but I'm talking, you know, not <laughs> not decades, yeah. but certainly a few years. Uh, and we've been able to feed that into a lighting solution, and uh, that's basically image-based lighting, isn't it, uh, Matt? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And did they shoot on the Sphere one for this one? They did. So what made it really interesting is that they shot on the Spheron, which is a camera that does that, doesn't need to use a fisheye lens. It actually rotates around a central column. But it does one other thing that's really cute, and I got to play with one of these in LA, and at the time when they showed me this, they were showing me this feature. Uh, it was actually a VFX house was showing me, and they were saying, oh, this feature they put in there for police, because they want to do a crime scene. It scans... Uh, like it does and produces an HDR and so you don't have any loss of detail because whatever you're looking for from dark blood spatters under a chair to something that was happening up in the highlights, you've captured all of that range. That's great. But then it has a central column and you lift it up and it has a, a, an absolutely fixed offset. So imagine like a tripod that has a central column and you can unwind it and lift up the middle bit, not the legs now. The legs are staying in the same position, just a just central the middle column. middle neck section. Yeah. And so it, imagine that you do two of these now. Because it's got a very fixed distance between those two, you've effectively got a super stereo image set of the world because, well, it did them a few seconds apart. Um, who cares, right? Because it's meant to be pretty much a still set, especially a murder scene. <laughs> and the idea is it does one scan HDR, goes up its whatever it is, let's say it's 30 centimetres, and does its second scan. And now you've got the world seen 360 degrees, high dynamic range from two very much we know the distance between the two lenses stereo kind of pair right yeah and that lets you triangulate everything so not only do they do the hdr that gets them what was happening on set but they've triangulated the position of every actual light on set and this is significant because if you think of a dome like a big kind of thunder domey kind of dome thing that you might map a sort of hdr onto and then you'd put your computer graphics in the middle of it and it'd be lit by this sky dome that's well and good for skies but for on set when you want the lights to be down in the action so that if a character moves away from a light there's real parallax between them and the light it doesn't work so well just to map it to a kind of an infinite sky dome well sony and and i think other companies well i know certainly ilm and i'm sure other companies are doing it actually extract the lights from the hdr so they subtract out let's say the light that's on a I don't know, Jason, we have like a Kina flow, right? Which would mm -hmm. be possibly on a C stand and in the side. They extract that out so it's no longer in the sky dome. They actually then place a um, polygon in the scene and put a projection of the HDR light on the polygon and it actually sits in the scene at exactly the same position that the C stand would have been from where the, uh, the HDR was done. So this idea of extracting the lights and then rebuilding the set, we saw a little bit on, um, certainly I first became aware of it, on Iron Man from ILM. But Sony did it uh, extensively, apparently, on the Smurfs. Did you guys see the Smurfs? Like, uh, yeah, I've seen bits of it. I definitely have it, but I haven't seen all of it yet. I haven't seen did it. Did it look good? Because I, I didn't see it. I was kind of a Smurf snob and didn't see it. Was it. Did it look good? Yeah, it looked, it looked really nice. It, it did. But what it was, I mean, most of the time I wouldn't have seen it unless my kids were kind of slightly interested. But it did look nice. Um, it's really interesting what what you were saying with regards to the lighting in in removing those lights from the main HDR and and mapping them onto almost virtual physical lights in the environment because obviously that makes a huge difference as a character approaches that window or that light in that they get brighter and as they move away they're going to get darker 
which you wouldn't get, would you, if, if it was just mapped onto a, onto a sphere as often you see? No, and the other key point, which I'm sure you'd appreciate in 3D, is that uh, you know if you have a point source light, it behaves in a certain way. And, well, Jason, you'd appreciate this from just lighting things uh, for real, right? It's like the difference between having a, um, you know, a redhead and then having a big softbox. Mm-hmm. Because once you map it onto a rectangle, that Kina flow that I described, it isn't mapped as a point source, like, okay, the illumination comes from this sort of mathematical point in space. It goes on a little card that's, you know, essentially the same size as the light. So if the light had a bit of fall off towards the top of it because, I don't know, the Kina flow was leaning that way and the, I don't know, scrim was covering a bit of that corner, you get all of that property. You get an area light, big, lovely softbox effects uh, because the lights are really kind of in your 3D space and it's real sort of photos of the lights that are being stuck on those cards um, sitting in 3 space. And this is this is really like bleeding edge stuff. This is like right at the edge. In fact, uh, Katana, which is a product from the Foundry, which I know that you know, Matt, um, Katana... Use, was used by the guys at uh, Sony for doing this. And Katana is great, and you can buy Katana. But the stuff that Sony's doing in terms of this IBL Create um, stuff, of extracting these lights and stuff, is all part of the stuff they built on top of that. So you've basically got sort of multiple levels of lighting tech here. You've got Katana, Sony's version of which, because they again sold it to the foundry. You've got uh, their version of Arnold, which has stuff that even the sort of solid angle stuff isn't quite there on yet. And then you've got Sony's super ip on top of that which is these things uh to do with their physical based lighting which is why i totally agree with you jason and i think your brother should feel (laughs) completely validated that corridor sequence just looked real there's just no two ways about it i mean i just i've looked at production stills and i yeah look real yeah i mean the and and on top of that the animation didn't give it away either i mean you obviously knew that their cg um uh, people because because of the, the way that they were moving and where the camera was and 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 whatnot but it still didn't give away anything in the physical space you know you, it still didn't tip your hand and say oh this must be a fully digital sequence um but what's really amazing to me about the way that the industry advances on things like this um uh is that is that it's it seems like Right out of the gate, you would say, well, of course, we need to figure out a way to place our lights exactly where they were and rebuild the scene exactly the way it should be. But the way that the tech rolls out, that it sort of comes in backwards over time, <laughs> which which I think yeah. is, is – is, speaks volumes to the way nature works and and the way that we continually – move forward trying to replicate it and how hard it is to to do what happens in the real world well i remember using hdr shop and it's got to be 10 years ago i don't even know when hdr shop came out did anybody else get to use hdr shop it was like from the ict they came out with this product um at the very dawn of kind of when this was going on and one of the things that hdr shop did i mean there are lots of things it did but one of them was um once you built your HDRs, somebody had written a plug-in for it. I just can't remember who this was. And the plug-in for it took the HDR and produced a set of points lights to emulate the real lights that you were getting out of the HDR. And I remember being just stunned at this. Like it was you with about 20 or 30 point source lights. 
you you would just basically say, okay, here's my HDR, give me a Maya file, and out would pop sort of 20 or 30 lights <laughs> positioned yeah, around. But, of course, they were all without any knowledge of any distance that a light would have from the origin. They were like... So every light from an HDR's point of view, it's got no way of knowing how far away they are because a single HDR, it's just a, it's a ball, right? Is that right. a sunlight a million, million light years away kind of thing that's just super hot or is it like a super hot lamp that's about a metre away? I mean, I can't tell <laughs> yeah. it's an HDR. It's just a very, very bright hotspot over there to the left. And looking back now, of course, it was kind of naive how excited I got about that, but I just thought this was the coolest piece of tech in history. Of course, beyond just the lighting this tech goes into compositing as well doesn't it because once you've extracted those lights not only can you do a output of the main beauty pass but you could actually output light layers based on a backlight or a fill light or a skylight and and then use that as an additional level of control actually in the composite itself which you wouldn't be able to do if it was all just stuck into one big uh, lighting sphere Actually, I've got to, um, that is a really terrific point that you're making there. I had I even forgotten to uh, about that. Yeah, the um, that tech that I was talking about, that layering up, that extracting light stuff, yeah, you're right, extends to the fact that their open uh, source language, the OSL shaders and stuff, that whole setup allows them to export. Like most of us are used to exporting spec and diffuse and uh, like a shadow pass and maybe an ambient occlusion pass. Well, obviously ambient occlusion pass is not so relevant here. But, you know, whatever those passes are that you're outputting, these guys at Sony were outputting key light and fill light. <laughs> and, they were, and, of course, uh, that's a really interesting thing. And then, of course, you could break it even further and have fill light, you know, spec component. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's a great approach that Sony has, which is they're trying to get the pipeline as good as they possibly can to let their lighters light as well as they possibly can. But then when they get it to their compositors, their compositors have really intuitive tools for then adjusting it. I mean, I don't know about you, Jason, but I would love to be sitting at a comp with just some spectacularly good 3D like this and then someone just say, can you adjust the filter, you know, uh, key ratio and me just go, yeah, I'll just grab the key light and adjust it down a fraction and everything throughout the whole scene perfectly adjusts based on the maths that uh, I've set up in my Nuke script. I mean, just be awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, I mean, that's what you want. Right. I mean, you want to have the control, but have it be organic and not be um, just math. So uh, somebody, I think, I think it was you, uh, Matt, at the outset said there were some shots you didn't like. So having given Sony as much love as we have, and this was primarily a Sony uh, film, what shots didn't you like? There was only, I mean, this is incredibly small, and I obviously I couldn't have done any better myself, but I know I was trying to see if there's anything that, that seems slightly off. Um, there was a shot early on when uh, Peter went to Dr. Connor's home when he arrives at the door, and Dr. Connor says, why, why are you yep. here? And they go in and they talk, and he ends up giving him the, the formula. Well, there's a shot... W- just after I think uh, the cup gets knocked off the table where you have a shot of uh, Dr. Connor um, stood side onto the camera and his shirt um, just doesn't look quite right where they've obviously removed um, his rear arm and uh, and covered and, you know, taken away the rear arm and, and put some cloth back to fill in the hole it just seemed a little bit stiff and that's obviously incredibly nitpicky um but that was one of the only things i thought hey that the the, the fabric of this cloth seemed a lot more flexible in earlier shots Uh, but in complaining or not really complaining but in mentioning that 
almost immediately, I don't know, within a few minutes of that shot coming up, there was a shot of Dr. Connor stood in front of the mirror in his vest. And um, that obviously was stereo, was a reflection, was an arm removal, and that just looked spectacular. So uh, slightly bad and followed by a very nice shot. I I did not have a problem with the arm removal. I thought they did it pretty well. They uh, Obviously his arm was there, it was in a stocking, um, and they keyed it out. What did, what did you think, Jason? I I was looking also, I think there was, uh, I'm trying to remember where it was. It was, I think it was one of the very first um, Spider-Man lizard interactions. At the very beginning of the sequence, there was some physics issues with the, with some of the, the characters' movements. And it was literally for like a split second. And then they cut, and then it was totally fine. It was just like this, this initial inertia thing where there was a little bit of a shift in the, in the, the animation. And again, I'm being like, this is like the most uber critical of critical. You know what I mean? Like I'm looking, I'm looking at the the minor dirt spec on a perfectly clean window. You know what I mean? Like so, the um, I I did love the the uh, arm removal. I thought was really well done. I I forever have dubbed it the uh, what is it, Lieutenant Dan uh, <laughs> effect from Forrest Gump because they did it so well too. They um, did. And I, I I had no issues with the arm. I thought it looked really nice, really natural. Uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I thought it was really nicely done. It, it moved properly, and and um, and and it, it and they didn't overplay it. I thought, which was which was nice. And and I really like the uh, sort of metamorphic sequence when he digs his arm out of the out of the 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 husk, sort of snake skin, yeah, as it were. Um, sort of had a had an a, a proto engineer um, Prometheus vibe with the sort of goopy white silky mm. um, sort of baby you know giant baby arm. And it was nice that it wasn't perfect, wasn't it? it wasn't yeah. like uh, yeah, you've just got your own arm under there. Come on, really? It was not like fingernails all perfectly uh, formed and yeah. everything, sort of looking manicured. Little, no, I thought it was uh, a little embryonic. I think most of that was actually practical. That was uh, yeah, almost entirely on set, I believe. Yeah, I mean, you would imagine that would be practical. That would make so, so much so sense. So really, you guys, I'm just kind of fascinated that you guys went there because I just had major, much bigger issues with a whole different section of stuff that you guys haven't even touched on. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but all right. All right I had it. a what huge problem. What did you see? It was just the swinging. I just can't get over the swinging. So let me just say this. I think that the poses that he would make, especially like that final pose against the moon when the birds are coming out from behind him and it goes into slow-mo. Yeah. Just spectacular posing. Well, I that's a pure... The, as I've already said, the rendering, just best I've seen, just spectacularly good. The modelling, everything we've talked about in terms of character design, off the dial good, great lighting, great rendering, great rendering. Everything is except for the physics of Spider-Man's moves, which just looked wrong to me. And... And I'm just surprised you guys didn't have a problem with it. I mean, I, I guess at this point, I'm sort of over that. I mean, I know it's CG, and there's it's very, very hard to match that stuff. So I, I, maybe, I've, maybe I've sort of no, cut no, the no, top no. off I'm my sorry, expectations. I'm call you on that one. I don't think it actually is hard. In fact, I, I tell you how hard I don't think it is. Okay. I actually worked it out on paper today. <laughs> so can I run you through it, Jason? Go ahead. So my problem is this. 
that was the best rendering of Sixth Avenue. And I don't live in New York, so you tell me if it wasn't. But that looked like a really good New York street to me. Did that? Yeah, no, New York, New York looked. York, no, New York look? looked great. Okay, and so I looked up Manhattan Sixth Avenue, which I know is what they were kind of using to model it on, right? And apparently, your city blocks are eighty meters by two hundred and seventy meters on average. And I, I studied the footage that they've released, uh, both the mock-up of it and the uh, successive renderings, and then the final images. And they've released the final images so I could time them. But they've also released the uh, behind-the-scenes footage when the guy's actually swinging on a real trapeze kind of rig. Yep. Okay, so let's start with the section where he's um, he's like under an overhang of a, a mm-hmm. train track kind of thing, yep. and he hits a bus, he kind of swings down and it's like bug on the front of a bus yep. gag and he runs down the side of it and then he, anyway, he swings off down away and it's earlier on in the film, right? And, and in that, they actually had a guy swinging on a rope and so I timed it on my stopwatch and I, it was about 2.9 seconds, maybe 3 seconds per, from right of screen to left. Okay, so we'll call that half a swing because obviously a pendulum goes all the right. way to one side and comes back again. So that would make it six seconds, say, to go from one side to the other and back, right? And I don't know about you guys, but I tried to work out how long that um, that rope was in top of him. And then I sort of just thought, oh, I'll just do it on the maths. And so based on the maths, if you actually use the formula for, I don't know how much you guys remember your high school maths for, um, for the uh, time that it would take for something to swing, but it's just in case you don't remember it, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I don't. It's 2 pi. Uh, well, it's pretty easy to remember. It's 2 pi over the square root of the length of the rope uh, divided by gravity. Now, the, the reason that I'm going there on this podcast, dear listener, is that they opened the friggin' door to this because there are two characters that walked in front of Peter Parker at one point commenting on the physics of swinging. Do you guys... Yeah, I thought that was really See funny. those scenes? Okay, and so when I didn't like the swinging and they'd actually put two references to the physics in it, I thought, oh, my God, that is a VFX show <laughs> moment. That is like someone at Sony handing the VFX show a present. It was like they <laughs> gift-wrapped it. And I thought, never before in the history of the show have we had such a present, so I'm going to go there. Okay, so I did the maths, right? Um, and as the characters in the film said, the gravity uh, constant is a constant, and the length of the rope is a variable, and pi is a constant. And the one thing that isn't in that equation, as they said, is the weight of Peter Parker, because the weight of the bottom of the pendulum makes no difference on the arc time of the swing of the frequency. So we don't need to know how much he weighs. We just need to have an idea how long it took to swing from left to right and, uh, and how long the rope was. And we can time that so we can work out that he was on a six-meter piece of rope under that thing swinging, right? So a six-meter rope basically gives you, um, you know, as near as damn it what we want uh, to do here, right? Because if you plug the numbers in, you get obviously two times pi is about 6.28. Let's round it up. Square root of like... Um, uh, well, actually, I think it was nine meters I worked it out to be because it was nine over 9.8. Therefore, the square root of that's about one and it's about six. And I think I said a second ago it was three seconds, right? So, yeah, so it yeah, must be about so, a nine meter yeah. piece of rope. Okay, so nine meters is about right for how long that was. And also, just looking at it, the guy's about what, a meter and a half high, uh, 170 centimeters, depending on the stuntman. It looked that that would be about mm, 10 meters, nine or 10 meters longer than him. So, okay, so that's. That's good. And you know what? Obviously, when you're watching the behind the scenes and you see a guy swing on a real rope, of course the maths would work. Otherwise, you know, 
Yeah, it's, re- <laughs> it's actually yeah, happening. It's, it's happening. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so now, and then if you look at the film in that sequence, it works really well. He swings away until the final shots, the last couple of shots where he's off in the distance, where they've cut back to the somebody on the ground and they cut back to him, and it's clearly moved to a digital double, and he swings faster out of shot on what seems to be a longer thread. And at that point, it starts to look fake. And the reason is simply because they just violated the rule of the pendulum math. And it gets way worse if you jump up the end of the film back to my 80-metre by 270-metre city blocks of New York. With the cranes. Now, I don't, yeah, the cranes, exactly. So I don't know what you guys reckon, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that a building in New York, because I looked them all up on Google, Along that stretch of, of uh, I have to do my homework for this show. They're about 150 <laughs> meters high. The top ones are like closer to 186 meters, 193 meters. But yeah, let's call it 150 meters high, right? He didn't seem to me to be swinging in most of the crane shots from the top to the very bottom of the buildings. He seemed to be swinging about a city block length, and he'd come down about a half or a third down the building. But there yeah, was one shot where he goes right by the cop, really low. But I think, generally speaking, most of those shots he's pretty up high above the above the traffic, and so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he is doing one city block, which is 40 meters per swing. That makes sense to you guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. ish, uh, ish. <laughs> well, yeah, ish is right, right? But anyway, let's let's for argument's sake that uh, sorry, it's 80 meters, and and I'm saying it's a 40 meter piece of uh, webbing because. Right. You know, it swings from one side to the other, so it's two lots of 40 to get you 80. Okay, so to get 80 metres, assuming you could do as Spider-Man does, which seems to be a complete swing that gets you from the horizontal up to the other side, sort of horizontal again, that's stretching out to be about 80 metres in a single swing. And he goes down about six city blocks. Okay, now, in the film, I timed it, because they've released this on the net, at... I timed each swing at either 3.9, 3.7, or 4.5. They vary a bit. Okay, well, I can live with that. But they're still in that range of about four seconds, one-way swing. And if you were to come back, it would be eight. Now, remember, under the subway, he had a nine-meter piece of webbing, and he did that in six, or rather three one-way and three back would be six, right? Now we're talking about it's... It's a much, 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 much longer stretch of, of rope, and he's doing it in about four, which would be eight. So let's just go the one-way swing numbers for a second. He swings when he's underneath the train, nine metres in real time and in the film. He does that in about uh, three seconds. Now he's meant to be giving not from nine metres but for an 80-metre kind of span on a 40-metre piece of string, and he does it in just a second longer. And it's completely wrong. If you did the maths and you gave him all the benefit of the doubt in the world and said that he was doing it um, with a 40 metre and it was kind of really just completely nailing it and the, the streets didn't have in themselves any actual width because we're just going to take that out of the equation and assume he's done a bit of just sailing through the air before he files the next one, he should be taking at least 12 seconds of swing. So, so my point about this, you say it's hard to do this right. I say he's flying through the air about three times faster mathematically than he should be, three times faster than he actually did when they filmed him doing it, and that's why he always looks wrong. He just looks wrong swinging because you don't have a really, really, really huge thing on a long stride flying around that fast. That's fine. I'm, I'm with you on the maths, but from a pacing and editing and storytelling perspective, you... Would you rather they have either 
jump cut uh, or, or truncated the swing and not shown the full arc with the proper speed or shown a full 12 to potentially 36 second sequence of him swinging just to sell it the full, you know, two or three, two or three swings down the street. I, I think you need to hide it more. I think the problem that you're saying is completely true, right? People are yelling at their their pods, uh, iPods right now saying, shut up, Seymour. But I, I totally agree that in film you cheat stuff all the time, right? Totally accept it. The trouble, though, is you're trying to sell this guy as not being superhuman. Like, he's not flying like Superman. He's, you know, that bit, the swing, that is performing under the normal laws of physics. So I'm saying in a, in a world where they get everything right to about 100 decimal places and just totally nail it, there's this one area where they're just setting themselves up for a fall because they have him moving three times faster than he should. You know, like on paper, maybe four times faster, and it just doesn't look right. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to have the lighting four times wrong, if you're going to have the character four times the wrong size... If you're going to have the character, but those are things like, that, but the, I feel like those are things that I'm not saying I disagree with you, but at the same time, scale and and inverse square violations and things like that are are much more apparent to the typical viewer, which is who they're making the movie for. I'm sure. I'm sure anyone from Sony listening to the, I'm sure there's an animator at Sony who's going to play this for their supervisor and say, "I told you." I told you he's moving too fast. You know, I know that's going to happen. But for the general viewing public, which is who the movies are made for, unfortunately, or fortunately for the animators, they don't they don't have to obey those laws fully. Now, I I I always have a problem with impossible camera and stuff, and I'm pretty sure I felt pretty good about them being less uh, abusive of that than Raimi was in the other movies, and I really liked the cutaways to the Snorri style um, POV cams of him holding the holding the uh, ropes and just seeing his hands and the webs. I mean, and swinging. I thought that was a really a really nice uh, push forward in that sort of uh, camera work and storytelling from that perspective. Okay, I, but it pulled but you like in. Like the shots where they went into slow mo. Mm-hmm. Like there's a shot where he comes around the building and he gets shot in the leg kind of thing. There's yeah. a shot at the end when, he, as I said, he comes out with the birds behind him, all that kind of stuff. Spectacularly good, right? Because once you go into slow-mo, all my problems go away. Right. Because I no longer have a reference of time and feeling. Mm-hmm. And he looks really cool and it's dramatic. Posing, lighting, everything nailed it. You know, game over. Thanks for playing. Put it on your showreel. You deserve uh, all the accolades you can get. The trouble is, though, that in this in this film, especially that end sequence, they have these really long shots that allow an idiot like me to sit there without a cut, timing them all out <laughs> that go for 3.9, 4.5, and 3.7 seconds, and they're just wrong. And I think he looks toony. And I think there's a great shot where he swings up onto the top of whatever bridge that is that the lizard is first attacking the guy on. Mm-hmm. And he, he swings in too fast, and he lands, and he looks like CG, and he's toony. And yet, when there are other shots where he's doing stuff where you're not so aware of that whole swing feeling, and it's not all happening in real time, and you're not seeing it played out really clearly over how far he's going, what he's doing, uh, it works great. And, you know, when he's underneath swinging smaller things, like under that subway thing, they get him doing it almost exactly right until the last shot, then they go break the laws of physics, because they just think it should, and it suddenly feels fake again. 
And I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just don't see why that fakeness is less of a problem than getting the skin wrong. And quite frankly, just because a normal moviegoer couldn't articulate it, I don't know that that, that that is our yardstick for success here because A, we're, I'm certainly a bigger technical snob than that, and, but B, more to the point is a lot of people can't articulate what they don't like about something. They just know that maybe they don't like it or it looks fake. I mean, that's the whole thing about Uncanny Valley, right? You can't really articulate what's wrong with a face. It just looks wrong. Hmm. Don't you think, Jason, that at some point... you? you I've, I have certainly heard it from other people. I've even heard it from people that were way outside the industry that they thought that there were times that the Spidey guy just seemed computer-generated. But you yeah, didn't I'm, get any of that in you, no, I'm your not, friends or anything? I'm not, I'm not saying that, that... I'm not trying to intimate that the average moviegoer is the lowest common denominator. I'm not saying that they're, that they're not an intelligent viewer. Um, the, the non-industry uh, viewer. Of course, people can pick out all sorts of things that they don't like and and just having it feel wrong is just as bad as you working out the math and saying it's technically wrong um i actually i didn't know anyone else who's seen the film yet because it just came out last weekend uh here and um so so um I, i have no barometer no one had given me any and i stayed away from any reviews uh, before I saw it, because I didn't want to uh, blow it for myself, but the um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a it's a tough tightrope. I agree with you. I did find, I I, I guess the, one of the reasons I didn't bring it up as something that bothered me is because I it for me it's just a given that that those things that those things are going to be look toony in your in your to use your word um, because. I just that's it's never been done properly. I think the Avengers was the was the best physics for like the Hulk, say, you know, when he jumps however, you know, a mile or whatever. Uh um there's no pendulum in that, so it's a little easier to get away with just saying, you know, the Hulk jumps far and you see him. And go in the away Hulk one we tended to smaller. not have a shot where you'd see him in a wide shot jumping that you could sit there with a stopwatch and actually see him do the entire arc of his jump and do something. It was very cutty. Right. And and cuts, I totally grant you. Once you put a couple of cuts in there, my stuff goes out the window. Like, who cares, right? It, it, you can be overlapping cuts. You can be jump cutting. It's impossible to tell. You don't get the read. Like, maybe it was a better shot edit in Avengers to edit round that problem Maybe that's my criticism. Maybe that the edits, the shot design lengths here. It's just, don't, I don't know. Maybe you should weigh in on this, Matt. It just feels to me, as I say, you've got it right to like three decimal places in almost every other part of the film, like some of the best stuff you've ever seen. And then you get it out by like, you know, order of magnitude by comparison. I think um, it, it's funny. I, I think I'm slightly on the same side as as Jason in that when I watched it, it was just I'm watching Spider-Man and so I slightly or obviously a lot turned off my brain in regards to the physics of what was happening but I think also if I was making this movie I would be willing to say occasionally and they may have done it too much based on on what you were saying that I I want to show that swing I want to show a a big city block and a big long swing but I know I can't have that up there for 12 20 seconds because people are going to just go and get more popcorn or go to the bathroom while that's happening and so in order to show the the kind of the huge uh, spectacular swing i'm just going to have to do it quick 
Um, and it, it didn't, maybe if I watched it again and thought about it, I obviously wasn't thinking when I watched it, um, which would have been the case. I would have been looking at lighting and other bits and pieces. Um, I think that's all they've done. I think they've probably just said, okay, we know it's probably wrong, um, but we just want to show a big long swing and we haven't got... Oh, I'm sure that's what they did, which is why they put a gag in of two characters discussing it in front of Peter Parker. That was funny, yeah. Um, But, yeah. You're also also missing the the physics. No, but... You're also missing the physics that how many times would he dislocate his shoulders swinging? No, you see, I'm not there because on that, in inside this universe, he has increased strength, vastly increased strength. I, and I, okay, no problem, whatever. You know, he's suddenly super muscle bound, whatever. I don't care because I, that's explainable. But it doesn't, it isn't even that this illogically bugs me that I'm like, if you think about it for a second, that wouldn't happen kind of thing because I'm willing to accept plot holes that other people point out later because I go, you know what? I just didn't occur to me. Yeah, sure. They should have just gone back and got the time machine and it would have solved the problem. Um, I feel like in this one, it it took me out of the film and made it no longer look like really good expected. And look, I'm going to offer this by comparison. I'm willing to put about all the money in my pocket against, which is not much, <laughs> all the money in your pocket right now, that you wouldn't see that in Dark Knight Rises. And I'll go back to the last Dark Knight flipping of the um, truck in the streets of Chicago mm-hmm. one, where they actually did it for real, and... You know, like that would have flipped at a certain speed and they wanted to speed that up. They wouldn't have sped up the film. They'd have cut around it, right? They'd have cut right. to a different shot and then done other things. Because it was for real, they just accepted that that's how long an entire semi takes to tip from end to end. And if it takes a really long time to come down, you'll either play it out for spectacular value, you'll edit, or you'll even go to slow mode just to really emphasize some part of it. Mm. And, and, is it fair to compare Dark Knight, which I haven't seen yet, with Spider-Man? I mean, you know, in one sense, maybe not, but in another, well, they're both kind of superheroes, aren't they? Aren't they both kind of guys that aren't meant to be actually sort of, you know, able to fly and do stuff? Now, yes, there's a similar argument that, you know, Batman would die jumping off buildings trying to stop himself with his cape, and I'm, I'm like there for that. I get that that's the case. But in the context of the film, it's rare that... I, in the last Batman film anyway, that I ever went, oh my God, that looks fake. In this one, I just had a problem. And look, obviously it's just me because you guys, <laughs> I really respect your opinions. Obviously it's just me. But I, for me, it just took me out of the film. I went, okay, why is that not look good? And it started with that under the subway shot when it went, why is that last shot look suddenly wrong? And, and I took it to the end. And, you know, at the end, I still enjoyed the film, but I just think that that is a real problem that if you want to make visual effects do stuff that's way out of what it can do it's it's virtually impossible to sell that unless you're willing to cut around it but hey yeah that's just my yeah. two cents what did you uh what did you think uh, talking about physics and things what did you think of the scene where um when he's just kind of getting um to grips with his abilities and he goes up on the roof and he does that crazy two-finger handstand did that work for you Right on the kind of the cusp of the the top of the building. Uh, okay, so I didn't mind that in the sense that um, I was willing to accept that he had like, you know, super strength and he was super agile and he could balance on the head of a pin. Um, what bugged me slightly is that when he was in that sequence 
and I think right after it, it was the most magical lighting of New York I've ever seen. <laughs> and it seemed to be always nice in magic hour. A golden didn't it? Yeah, though there is one tracking shot where it's sort of tracking around the top of a building and he's standing on a bit of a curved edge that was really textbook perfect. It was just so well done. I don't know if somebody was up there with wires, they removed the wires later. I think they just comped them up there. But it was just a heck of a shot. He was quite small in frame. It's on the edge of this building and the camera is moving left to right and there's lights kind of gleaming on the whatever it is. Yeah, I think that before was before he rang his um, auntie back, I think. Yeah, when and she it called was him really good. And he was sat up there for a while. You didn't like the two-finger handstand? Uh, it just felt like um, he was probably on a wire and the and the wire was taking his weight from his back where I feel that the weight should have been coming from his arms and shoulders and it didn't, as an animator, it didn't feel like it was the right place. Now, if that was CG, then um, I back away, but it felt like no, he was, he was wired on wires that. We, and they've released a making of the wires. wrong slightly. On a blue screen. Yeah. The only time I saw that was in some of the skateboarding sequences right before that. You know when he goes mm-hmm. uh, to test his powers out with the skateboard? Oh, uh, yeah. And he does a couple of leaps up into the scaff off the board, which definitely looked to me like it was rig-supported weighting. Um, just because to lift your body up, you're still going to have to compress and, and um, extend your legs to get the kind of... Like it doesn't matter that... a that an animal can hop, it just needs to have the compression in its legs to do the hop, right? The yeah. grasshopper mm. has amazing well, hind legs and uses them. The w- so a cow isn't going to jump because it doesn't have that compression in the legs. And and for a human to do it, you have to really see that go through the pelvis. And it felt like in that case it was coming more from his upper body, which is I think what you're referring to, that idea of like where the support weight is for the pivot point, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, I think this the stuff that gives away the wire work in that is actually more the way he lands. Because he they okay. they people in the in the wire work always land in whatever they're doing much softer um than they normally would. Right. Like when he when he I don't care that he can stick to the wall, if he jumps up, he's going to hit the wall hard. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? He can't you can't slow yourself in 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 midair into the wall impact. Yeah, great. Hey, here's one that didn't bother me that was physically wrong, but I, I, I totally give them this one as just it was a cool shot. When he's rescuing the kid out of the car that's hanging off the side mm-hmm. of the bridge and he's holding onto the car with one hand and he's holding onto the bridge with the other, his legs are going straight up towards the bridge and it didn't bother me the first time I saw it. And then later um, I started thinking about that shot and I was like, why was his legs going up? Because They go out, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got a picture very, of it right in front of me. It's a very, very cool shot. Right. They should be uh, There's no, there's no reason. Down. <laughs> but it's stylistically valid, right? Like it's just a cool way to hang. It made him feel like he was reaching down for the kid, where if he'd been hanging the other way, it would have felt like he was much more just, you know, being ripped apart. But anyway, I um, see, I'll, I'll give him that one. I don't mind that the physics was wrong there because it was a cool shot and it didn't take me out of the film. Um and it didn't make it look cartoony. It looked stylized. Is probably my mm. two cents on that one. I'll say the thing. But, I'll say uh, the thing yeah. that was most shocking about that scene to me, that sequence with the car, was that once he got the kid back up onto the bridge, that the dad was played by C. Thomas Howell, and that he looked really old. <laughs> <laughs> I turned to my brother. I goes, "That C. Thomas Howell? Jesus Christ, he looks bad." <laughs> 
Okay, I'll bite. Who was that? C. Thomas Howell, the guy. The he was in. He was in like uh, the original Hitcher and Taps, like the old uh, first like um, Red Dawn stuff, like that. Like he was a uh, okay. he was a, 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 a '80s actor. Um, uh, uh, you know, like a teenage to '20s actor. He was Soul Man. You know, okay. that that kind of stuff. Uh, but I always liked him as an actor, and uh, and uh, he, I just haven't seen him in a while. And I was like, wow, he's all gray. He looks like a dude now. He's not like a teenager. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one that got me was um, Aunt Polly. The minute she appeared on screen, obviously that's Sally Field. Yeah. I was immediately at Smoking the Bandits. Now, hang yeah. on. It's not Polly. It's Aunt May. Aunt May. So, yeah. yes. I normally get names wrong, but Aunt May is, is hallowed ground. She's yes. normally the whitehead. Yeah, I, I thought that was a aunt. great bit of casting with her and, and Martin Sheen. I mean, oh, wasn't that terrific? Wasn't Martin Sheen? I mean, like, really, that guy just—they should just keep giving him Oscars until he can't put him anywhere. I just love that guy on screen. I thought he was great as the uh, uncle. That was really, really good. Did you did you like the rest of the acting in the film? I thought I love Reese Evans, the guy who played Doctor Connors. I've I've loved yeah, every movie he he's good. been in. So he's yeah he's always been a favorite of mine and i'm i'm really happy that he got um cast as the as the villain in a very large film not having a huge cachet from a butts and seats perspective uh similarly to how they cast jermaine clement in men in black three like i think it's interesting that they're going for these villain types with people who can act or or bring something to that character rather than just a box office person yeah no, i agree i thought he was great i i loved him in um notting hill he's been yeah. in tons of stuff that the, was very comic in. yeah michelle gondry's first right. movie it was great uh seeing him in a sort of more dramatic but yeah. and, you know he had some pathos to him he was not just strictly black and white yeah. it wasn't well, he's a great actor I mean, they couldn't have set up by the way the sequel more if they tried but anyway um yeah. <laughs> uh with the whole motivation for him doing the work but you yeah, know i thought he was really good he's Performance to his hand gave him some real motivation for what came after, which I thought was just totally valid. Um, and, uh, and Emma Stone. I mean, I thought Emma Stone. I like Emma Stone as an actress. I think she she brought some strength to. I mean, Gwen Stacy's always a little stronger than MJ anyway. But uh, I like that they went with Gwen Stacy in this in this uh, story. That actress because then has- at least it made it feel a little different than just rehashing the same characters yeah. from the other ones that actress has the largest cat eyes yeah. <laughs> kitten eyes in history yeah. i couldn't believe the yeah when she gives some of those doughy looks yeah. uh, i would almost have sworn that she had visual effects enlarging her eyes yeah it was incredible. and andrew I garfield was nice though too. it was the, the the difference in the way they portrayed her character as opposed to what we would have seen maybe with a megan fox style character it just seemed like a much nicer person and, and a, a more honest person. Less slutty, yeah. <laughs> yeah, though, I must admit, I did laugh when I saw her in the uh, mini skirt at the lab. I was yeah. like, really? <laughs> Thigh-high boots and a mini skirt. Yeah, that would be what I'd wear at the lab, yeah. All you budding scientists do that. Well, okay, so I, I stick by my initial assertion that this was a really good cover version. Um, you going to give me your uh, opinion, Matt? What was your sort of final take on the film? Um, I liked it. I I wasn't really sure whether I would like it going in because um, I hadn't seen the other three for quite some time. So I just decided I would just go in with a, a kind of a fresh set of eyes. And I just, I really enjoyed it. It felt, like I said, 
a more honest film. I like the fact they slowed it down and had some nice dialogue between characters and it wasn't just uber rushed and, and kind of action, action, action. They did slow it down. And as you as we've said throughout the whole thing, visually and the detail was just stunning. So yeah, definitely gets a thumbs up for me. Jason? Um I I really like Andrew Garfield as Spider Man. I think he <laughs> So do my daughters. <laughs> I what'd you say? Sorry, there's a bit of a heartthrob in my uh, house. Uh, teenage set. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I think he brought the uh, having been a been a Spider-Man reader in my past. Uh, I think he brings Tobey Maguire had a bit of a now in retrospect a bit of a Jimmy Olsen vibe to him. You know, like uh, yes, uh, um, a little a little too. Uh, not I would say goody goody, but he's so kind of like wide eyed and like softer a little bit and Andrew Garfield brought a little more edge to him and I hate using that word but uh, I think he gave him the sort of snottiness and the snarkiness that Spider-Man has because he's kind of a he's kind of a dick Spider-Man in a lot of ways like he he knows he has these powers and like the scene where he where he the the, the car thief pulled the knife on him that's pure Spider-Man right where yeah where like, and I got that from the old cartoons as well yeah that was really that vibe of yeah. just Kind of a bit of a know-it-all, yeah. Kind of, yeah, he's a yeah, smart no, kid who's got superpowers and can kind of do whatever he wants. And he's a teenager; he's going to act like an yeah. asshole at times. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And I think that they that they rode that line really well. And uh, and I think I didn't read it in in a lot of the research, but there's no way they didn't take the Todd McFarlane era spider-man as their main influence i mean that ending shot uh over the moon is pure mcfarlane and the way it that they that the way that 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 they did the webs too, having the little like sort of barbed wirey knurled threads and things like that i mean that is that is pure mcfarlane and and i'm that's my one of my favorite eras of spider-man so i think i really like that they went that they went for that yeah, I should. I think we should actually give a, you know, credit to Jerome Shen, the visual effects supervisor. He's really done an exceptional job on this film and totally uh, deserves a huge amount of credit. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure. I mean, he's obviously got a very uh, strong career going already to this point, but you just know he's going to be doing stuff for the next couple of decades that we'll be watching and and sitting up and paying notice to. So I, I think Sony did a really good job on the visual effects. I think some of the stuff in this was just spectacular, better than I thought it was going to be. Technically, like top of its game kind of stuff. Um, notwithstanding my criticism on the on the swing rates, um, yeah. But when it comes to modelling and lighting, I, I think this is. Just spectacularly good work, and we didn't even talk about well, their their little. Just as a quick digression, their their procedural animation little pipeline they built to populate the insides of the buildings, which is a huge job. Yeah, look, there's there's tons of them. I mean, I actually think that population of Sixth Avenue, like the detailing on the street, and the cars and the traffic, and just the immense detailing on the and it was at night, but still. I mean, I live in New York, stuff. and I never um, and I never. I, it didn't really jump out at me like, oh, that's Toronto or that's a fake New York. Like, it pretty much felt like New York. I mean, they they stayed away from, you know, you only saw the Empire State Building in wide shots and stuff like that. They didn't really overplay the the landmarks, which I thought was nice. Yeah. You get it? It's New York. Move on. And 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 they and they just 
sell it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it was good. Um, and look, there are a couple of things in these sorts of films that are always a bit, you know, far-fetched and ridiculous, but that's what you putting your money down for right like there's no way that you're expecting realism you want a good ride yeah. and they delivered on a good ride and i think the visual effects team um totally brought it and quite frankly this film had the lizard and I, this why i come back to the lizard had the lizard not been as good as it was this could have been so lame and so stupid because i really don't think uh for example in the third spider-man film the one where they had the black spidey guy yeah the, venom. what was that character venom, venom uh, yeah sorry venom yeah that didn't work for me at all. I thought that looked completely toony. Um, and a giant lizard just, I wouldn't have thought, was going to be a safe bet. Uh, and it worked well. There was not scenes of the lizard where I thought, this is really stupid. You know, there's a guy... Because they, they said it themselves in that scene. So he's describing to the police commissioner, you know, there's a giant and he turns himself into a lizard. It's like, you know, do I look like the mayor of Tokyo? I mean, it, <laughs> it just didn't come off like as silly as it could have, certainly from reading it on paper. Um, it was a really credible, credible threat. By the way, they did use and the Godzilla. They used the Godzilla sound twice in, <laughs> in the same sequence. When the tower fell, fell over and, it, and the metal buckled, it was the Godzilla sound buried in the metal uh, squeak. You know that, or you just saying that from there? There's no, no, it's there. It's like the Wilhelm scream. It's there. You can hear it. I, I turned to my brother and I said, "Did you hear Godzilla?" He's like, "Yeah," which is fine. I mean, it's a great little. Not, I mean, maybe someone will say I was hearing things, but it's definitely in there. But I did like that they didn't a they didn't save the tower from falling off the top of the building, and b they just let it fall. It, like it just fell yeah. down. They didn't show it crash on the street. They're like, "Oh, well, that's going to happen. Whatever, move on." You know what I mean? No, no, I agree. I agree. Um, actually, just before we go, did you see there were quite a lot of Easter eggs buried in this film? I don't know if you um, if you uh, saw them all, but there was I, I didn't see them all, but um, there was I know that there were some that I did see that I uh, didn't even see necessarily the first time that were just pretty uh, interesting. Did you guys spot any? Uh, um, I, I, I spotted that. I, I, I'm not quite sure what you're looking for, but there was a, in the scene in the school when they have that kind of slow-mo um, fight through the library and, and there's um, and there's Stan Lee there. When uh, Spider-Man hits the deck, he lands on a Marvel comic book, I noticed. Did you notice that there was a copy of Seabiscuit in her bedroom near the window where... Oh, that's funny. Uh, I did not I see, that. see that. Which, of course, was the film that Tobey Maguire would go on to... Um, do which I thought was pretty funny. In between Spider-Man One and Spider-Man Two, he did Sea Biscuit, and there was a Sea Biscuit sort of you know book of the film kind of thing sitting on the table there, right near the window. And there, and there were quite a few of those I think throughout the film. And look, hey, I think it's you know that's awesome. I love that kind of stuff. Um, and actually, I get annoyed when I don't notice them. Somebody pointed out today that I missed the uh, Pizza Planet truck in Brave. Yeah, you guys seen Brave? Yeah, I, I missed that too. And then I saw a blog post about it. And I was like, damn it. Damn, yeah, exactly. And there, really, really? Call myself an observer? Yeah. And there's also a carving okay, well, look, of it's Sully. Been heaps of fun talking to you guys about this film. Thank you so much for letting me geek out. But I do claim that I was given the invitation by the filmmakers themselves. So uh, even if they didn't know they were doing that, I took that invitation as, as a geek out permission thing. Um, Jason, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks. And Matt, thank you for also joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 
Okay, well, we're almost out of uh, sort of comic book things, but don't worry, there is more to come. Uh, a big one not too far away is Dark Knight, which if you haven't uh, worked out already, is the film I've been looking for all year. So keep listening to The VX Show. Check out the stuff over at FX Guide and uh, please follow the guys on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you.